Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is the book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Club Book podcast features Julie Klassen at Anoka County's Rum River Library. Julie Klassen is Minnesota's answer to Jane Austen. Her romances, set in Regency-era England, have a strong and growing national following. Two of these, The Maida Fairborn Hall and The Girl in the Gatehouse, have the rare distinction of receiving both a Midwest Book Award and the Christie Award for historical romance. Her third hit, The Silent Governess, also earned a Christie Award and was a finalist for a Minnesota Book Award and the Romance Writers of America's Rita Award. The Dancing Master, her latest book, shines a spotlight on the unsung professionals responsible for teaching young ladies the social graces necessary for a public life in high society. Thank you. Thank you, Jill. Now, just a little bit of background. I was one of those kids um, who always liked to read and always wanted a new book for every birthday and, and for Christmas. Um, my brothers were the same. My own sons, I have two teenagers, not so much. Um, but I always wanted to read. And I always liked to write, at least from the second grade. And some of you may have heard this story before, but I like to tell it. Um, in the second grade, um, my mom saved a report card from that year that said, Julie's stories and poems show great potential. But what, this is true, but what you have to know about this teacher is her name was Miss Bologna. <laughs> true story, but I did always love to tell stories and to write stories. Um, fast forward through you know, taking every kind of writing class I could in, in, in high school, got to college, and I had a very wise guidance counselor who said, well, that's nice that you like to write your little stories, but you're gonna need to have a real job. So he kind of directed me toward a career in advertising, which still had some creative outlets, still some writing and creative things, but I could actually have a real job. And I think he was actually wise. And I get a lot of emails, I don't know if any of you have writing dreams yourself or have any young writers, um, probably here at the library, there probably are a lot, but I get a lot of emails from young writers, either in high school or in college, saying, you know, what should I do? I just, I just want to write, you know, the, my novels. My parents think I should go to college and get a degree. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, they pro you probably should. And then sometimes I've even gotten emails from the parents saying, thank you. Um, <laughs> but it is a reality. Now, you know, there, are, there is the very rare story of a teenager or a 20-year-old who does publish a book, but it's so rare that I still think it was Good advice then and good advice um, today. So I did work in advertising and marketing uh, for several years. I'm from Illinois, so I went to the University of Illinois there and got a job right in my same uh, college town. And then that company was bought by a much bigger company here in the city, St. Paul. And so they said, well, we're gonna transfer all the marketing folks up here if anybody wants to transfer. And I'm thinking, hey, I went to 
school in Illinois, I'm from Illinois, I'll try Minnesota for a year or two. Well, <coughs> you know, 20, I don't know, 25, almost 30 years later, here I am. I married a Minnesotan, so we're stuck, and that's okay, <laughs> especially this time of year. Oh my goodness, isn't it beautiful? I have been walking just everywhere, which is good, because writers sit a lot, so anything to get me out the door and walking is, is a good thing. Uh, so I worked in marketing and advertising uh, for several years up here, and that was a good job, but it was not the dream job. That came a few years later when I uh, applied for a job at Bethany House Publishing. There's not a lot of publishers, at least book publishers here in Minnesota, but I always love to read. So I found the, one of the few publishers there was, and I was very blessed that I was, got a job in marketing for Bethany House. So that was awesome because I was like a kid in a candy store. I could read, all, you get, we got all the new books, you know, and I worked, I worked for Deluxe Check before I got that job. I got free checks, okay? Free checks, <laughs> free books. <laughs> Did I move up or what? Uh, so I loved working there. Now I was still in advertising, but, and I give this advice to young people, whenever they'd say, okay, we need someone to review this manuscript to see if it you know, appeals to, I was in my 20s at the time, I'd raise my hand, oh, we need someone to abridge this uh, book down for audio. I'd ra I don't know what I was doing, but I raised my hand because I loved to read and I just loved everything about it. And so because of that experience, I just did anything that came along. I ended up with some editorial experience. And then later when I had my kids and I was trying to decide, do I keep working? It's almost an hour drive each way. It's almost down in Shakopee. I live in the you know, Shoreview. Um, or do I just stay home? What do I do? But because of my editorial experience, they offered me a job in editorial, which I could do primarily from home. So that was a wonderful uh, situation and blessing for us, uh, especially when the kids were young. So I continued working there. Um, I think I worked at Bethany House for hmm, about 16 years, 12 of those as an editor. That's where I switched over. But for all of those years while I worked there, I was a secret writer, a closet writer. I didn't tell anyone that I, because I was putzing around. I wasn't doing it. I wasn't finishing it. I, didn't, I just wasn't going to talk about it. But finally, 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 I finished my first historical novel. And we can thank my husband's layoff and a few other things. You know, you hear necessity is the mother of invention, and that was certainly true uh, in my case. So I finished my first historical novel. And then I was in a little bit of a quandary because I worked for the publisher that would be my dream publisher. And so I was like, oh, is that a conflict of interest? What should I do? So I talked to my boss on the side and said, you know, I've written this little novel, you know, if that... If you don't want to look at it, I, you know, if you want me just to take it somewhere else, that's fine. I perfectly understand. Just, that's fine. And he said, no, 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 we want to look at it, but what we'll do is we'll send it around with the pseudonym. So that way your coworkers, who will be reading it and giving it the thumbs up or thumbs down, won't know it's you, and so they'll be objective. And I'm thinking, yeah, and if they all think it's ridiculous, which they probably will, I could still show my face at work the next day. <laughs> so I was, all, I was up for that, um, that plan, and so that's what we did. And uh, probably, obviously, they liked the book and they wanted to publish it. And then my boss had the pleasure of telling them that it was really Julie's book, and and so that was fun. Now, since that time, while I still work there, I was edited just as hard as I ever edited anybody else. Um, turnaround is fair play, and all of that. But uh, it was a great experience. And because I had been uh, an editor for all those years, when those edits and those suggestions for improvement and all of those things came along. Um, I knew that it, was, that it was just to make the book better. And I don't know if you've, you know, you probably, some of you have probably heard other authors speak, especially work for a bookstore or a library. And sometimes you do hear authors who, 
Um, in fact, I, I won't name this author, but I was at a library and they were, this author was speaking very proudly how she got her editor fired because her editor was trying to make changes in her book. And I'm thinking, you know, I would not, I would feel like the emperor in his new clothes if I put a book out there without having my editors go through it all and finding all your mistakes, things you just don't see, you're so close to it. You really can't see it. Even though I was an editor, I still would never publish a book without a really good editor, several rounds of, of editors. So fortunately, I had that experience and knew that the books would only be better. And so that was, that was helpful. I will also say that the authors that I was still editing for said, hmm, Julie has become a much kinder and gentler editor. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> you know, all of us in life, you know, you can, you can give the same information couple of different ways. And that's saying about a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down or helps the medicine go down. It's so true. And you know, to give the praise and the things we like, whether it's to our kids or our spouses or anything else, giving, remembering to give some of the praise and some of the good stuff. And then it helps when you come along with that constructive criticism uh, along the way. So hopefully that's helpful to you. Now, as I mentioned, I continued to work at Bethany House for um, several years. I think I've worked for four books. You know the saying, don't quit your day job. Well, that is, that is true. And you may also know from hearing other ed editors speak or authors speak that um, it takes a while as you're an author, um, unless you wrote Harry Potter or something like that, to, to, to find your audience and to kind of build up that audience. And so I really look at uh, publishing as an investment. The really wonderful thing is my first book came out in 2000 and, hmm, January, I think it was 2008. And I'm still earning royalties from that book. So every year, now less and less because it's been out there and the libraries all have it, but, but I'm still earning money from that book and so it, is, it really is an investment and after four books, my very you know, practical husband looked at the numbers with me and said, okay, you can finally quit. Because I've been, yeah, after a while, your heart, my heart wasn't into it anymore because I was editing because I really was really enjoying writing. So after four books, I was able to hang up my, my red pen. And so here I'm saying, I'm living the dream. I say I'm, I'm a full-time writer now, which is what I've always wanted to do. Um, but I have to, of course, give you that caveat because I do have teenagers <laughs> and a husband, and they want to eat supper every night. <laughs> they do. Now, I will say tonight, though, my husband's like, oh, you have a speaking thing? Should I get Taco Bell? I mean, it was like all one sentence, because whenever mom's gone, they go to get Taco Bell, so they, don't, they do not mind this at all when mom is, is not gone. So, um, so they do keep me busy. But when I am home and they're at school, this is my job, and I'm so thankful to be doing it. Now, just a little bit about my books in general, if you aren't familiar with them. Um, they are all historical, set in the Regency era, which all that means is they're set in the early 1800s, about 1815, in England. I prefer to call it the Jane Austen era because that's an author um, that I love. Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice. If it's on TV, I'm there. I've read them all. So this is something that I love. So my books are set in that time period. Um, they all have uh, drama, a little bit of mystery, and of course romance. I'm a sucker for a good love story. Um, so far, my books have all been standalone. Um, so they're not part of a series. You can read them in any order. I will say on the side that I will, I have signed a contract for my first excuse me, series so that I will actually be attempting to write a series in the future. We'll see how that goes uh, after this. But I've enjoyed, because myself, I prefer to have everything in one package. But I have a lot of uh, readers who write to me and say, oh, I love a series. I get to know your characters, and then I have to say goodbye. And they ask me, what happened to so-and-so? And between you and me, I'm thinking, 
I don't know, they're a fictional character. <laughs> but they really want to know. And so, you know, and there, I will admit, there are some, some characters that I really do fall in love with and kind of become separate from me, me and my creation and I actually, you know, do grow attached to them. So I am going to try it. We'll see how that works. But that's a few years down the road before they're actually out. So um, my books are in the inspirational um, category. Uh, which means a couple of different things. For me, I mean, that can mean so many things. For me, it basically means they're written with a worldview that um, God exists, good and evil exists. However, they're not, if I'm doing my job right, they're not at all preachy. My characters are not perfect at all. In fact, that's a lot of my books are about the mistakes that we all make and, and how we get second chances uh, afterwards. Um, so I think you can enjoy them regardless of your background. They are um, in E. I saw somebody with Peggy has an e-reader. Some of you doing the e-readers now. I sell about half of my books in E and half of them in, in paper. So we're equal opportunity here. Um, but I have to say my favorite is audiobooks. Do you have a lot of audiobooks, Jill? I love them. They hire real professional British actors. And they they don't just read, well, you know, if you've listened to audiobooks, they perform them, and they just, even though, you know, if I was going to do a British accent, it'd be one really bad British accent, but they, of course, have a whole range of, you know, of different accents, because depending on where I've said it, specifically in upper class and servants and all of that. So if you get a chance, have a long trip, try them on audio. They're, they're wonderful. Now, as I've mentioned several times, my books are set in England, and this is just a map of England. Um, and I, so far, all my books have been set you can see where London is, basically in that lower third or even quarter of England and to the west. So I have a lot of work to do. I have to get over there a lot. I jokingly say that that's really the real reason I'm writing is so I could finally, you know, fulfill my long-held desire to go to England. And so I have been there. My husband and I have been there just twice. And then just in May, he has a new job and he couldn't get away. And you know, you don't really want to leave teenagers at home and they didn't want to go. So I went with an old friend uh, just in May, so my third time. And I've gotten eight books out of three trips. I think that's pretty good. I'm already itching to go back. But uh, So just for fun, and because I have my captive audience here, I'm going to show you just a few pictures of England because I love it. I love, this is London. I love the city. This is Bath. Yeah, any of you recognize that from Persuasion? Um, you have to say Bath, which, just a quick story. I went to high school in a town called Bath, Illinois, <laughs> population 400. And I have to say that Bath, England, is just a little bit nicer. I loved it there. Um, and I just, but I really, I'm a, I guess I'm kind of a country girl at heart because even though I like the city, I love the countryside. Have some of you been to England? Yeah, you have, Zill. isn't that beautiful? I mean, just the beautiful um, gardens and, uh, of course, the sheep, um, beautiful gardens in the, I've only been there in the springtime, so April, May, and their, their spring is ahead of ours, so they're much more beautiful at that time of year. Um, I love the coast, and the Tudor's Daughter, if you've read that, or I know David's got that one um, back there from Common Good Books. Uh, I love the coast, and, and my new book, which we'll, well, well, we'll talk about that later, is also set on the coast. And one of my favorite things to do is to tour old houses that still are much as they were in my time period and still have their servants' quarters intact and all of that sort of thing. And I love the little villages. And this is the <coughs> village of Laycock, which if any of you saw Cranford or Harry Potter or some of those, much of those were, were set here in this village. 
And of course, I had to visit the Jane Austen Center uh, for obvious reasons. And England is just, they have so many wonderful museums, which I, of course, love. This is the Victoria and Albert Museum uh, in London, so closed from my time period. One of my favorites was visiting a carriage museum. If you have read my books, I know some of you have, I'm always trying to get people from point A to point B. Did they take a, a Landau, a barouche, a curricle, a chain? What are all these things? So it was wonderful to see them up close and in person, um, and I use that information all the time as I'm writing. And of course, the tea and scones are really wonderful too. So, <coughs> yeah, great stuff. Now, I just want to tell you for fun, this last time I had a new experience in England. Uh, I have um, uh, the privilege of having some readers now from, from different countries and some from England as well. And one of my readers happens to live in the valley of, have any of you read The Apothecary's Daughter, my second book? Um, my bestseller, interestingly enough. It's set in Wiltshire, just in this, it's just a very rural area. Nothing, it's not really famous, but I said it because I wanted it to, uh, the book to be placed along these canals with the narrow boats. In any case, this woman wrote me and she goes, well, uh, my family and I own an 80 horse uh, riding stable. If you'd like to come, I'll teach you how to, well, I'll take you English riding. So I'm like, you know, part of, part of you is like, I don't, I've never met this person. Uh, but my friend, who's much braver than I am, um, who did all the driving on the wrong side of the road, <laughs> I will say, uh, she said, well, yeah, we're going to do it. And I'm so glad I did. And it's one of those things I'm learning in my life that taking the time to meet people, and even if it's a little, you know, a little nerve-wracking to make small, get to know somebody, but it's so worthwhile. Those are the things you really remember when you travel or, or do anything else. So they um, took us writing. They're very careful with the American author. They kept it slow. <laughs> they didn't want to injure the American author. But even better than the riding the horse was her mother-in-law um, lives in an 800-year-old thatched roof cottage. Well, I mean, it's, look at that. It's big. Now, um, so she had us in for tea in her 800-year-old house and showed us a copy of the original deed signed by King Henry VIII. Okay, <laughs> it just shows again how old things are over there. We just have really no concept. So that was just a wonderful day, and I just wanted to, to share that with you. I've just had some unexpected um, privileges in traveling uh, to England. Uh, one of the other unexpected fun things for me is that my books have been published in a couple of different languages now. Um, and this is my first book, Lady of Milkweed Manor. And then on the right is what it looks like in, anybody want to guess? Very good. Oh, are you? You're Dutch. Okay, would you do us a favor and read the title? <laughs> For those of you who can't see it, it's one really, really, really long word. And uh, it's, I'm going to try it. Are you ready? You can tell me how bad it is. Unfuvardelik. Isn't that perfect? Actually, um, the publishers there, they buy their rights from, from the local, from the American publisher, and then they reprint it in their language, translate it and print it. And they invited me to come over and do a little book tour. So I actually got to do a little book tour in the Netherlands and also in Germany, which is another country that my books um, have been printed. So that's just been really fun. I get emails from people from different countries. Sometimes I could even read them. <laughs> I hope they're fan mail. <laughs> you know, with Google Translator, you can kind of get the idea anyway. But um, really wonderful experience. I just love that. And so every you know, few months, I get a shipment with another book with another you know, a new title printed somewhere else. And that's a lot of fun. Here's one more. This is The Tudor's Daughter. And I, this one, I believe, is also in Dutch. So I don't even know how to say that one. But there it is. So that's been really fun as well. 
So now I'm going to tell you a little bit more about The Dancing Master, since we talked about it. It is my, uh, my most recent book, and I'm excited to tell you about this. And this book is special to me because I have, um, I have always loved to dance. So I think, I think it's been only a natural thing that I would write about a dancing master. Now just a little bit of background. In this time period, um, unlike today probably, dancing was one of the only ways that uh, young men and young women could spend time together or court one another. It was considered you know, such an important social skill that parents, um, middle class on up to the wealthiest, um, would hire a dancing master, or we would say a dancing teacher, to come into their homes and teach their sons and daughters um, not only the dance steps, um, but also grace and deportment and all of those things um, as well. So that's the background of the history and why dancing masters were a very common, commonly known uh, profession in that time. Now, my dancing master, um, Alec Valcourt, he is, has to leave his London Academy kind of under a shadow of scandal. And he moves with his mother and sister to a remote village in Devonshire, hoping to start again. But when he gets to this village, he soon uh, learns that the village matriarch has prohibited all dancing for reasons buried deep in her past. So Alec um, kind of joins forces with Julia Midwinter, who is the matriarch's daughter, and together they try to unravel some of the mysteries and what's going on in her past and hopefully bring new life um, to the village. Now, I mentioned, you know, why am I writing about a dancing master? Not only do I love to dance, I mean, uh, I don't know if, you, if any of you read this, I say this in my author's note, but I learned to dance the box step on top of my dad's size 15 triple E shoes. I mean, we just grew up dancing. I always loved to do it. And when I went to college, I took every ballroom dance class I could sign up for, which may be why it took me four and a half years to graduate. I'm not really <laughs> sure about that. Um, and this was my ballroom dance teacher. Her name was Aurora, is Aurora Villacorta. And she's a, I don't know if she's even five foot, little Filipino woman, just a powerhouse. She, uh, she was very strict and she carried a stick which she would use to tap out the tempo and also now and then to give, you know, a college student a little, always the guys, some little prod if they were uh, misbehaving. Um, so I just had a wonderful time and actually I learned so much and kept taking her classes that uh, after college we even taught at community education level, not, a, not professionally, but as a, at a community education level, um, ballroom dance uh, as well. So it's something I really loved and I loved working those experiences uh, into the book. Uh, but of course, I wasn't writing about dancing as it was done in the 80s uh, when I was in school, <laughs> but I know how it was done in the 1800s. So I had to do a lot of research, uh, like reading these books. My favorite was the one in the middle, which was The Diary of the Dancing Master to Queen Victoria's Children. Fascinating. And of course, I had to watch every period and costume drama ever made. Research is tough, but someone has to do it. So I watched all of those. But the best and most fun kind of research was, of course, going English country dancing myself. And this is my long-suffering Mennonite husband who went with me, he's a good sport, uh, several times. And there I am in my one and only pink Jane Austen dress. But that was not the only place I wore that dress. I got to go to the Jane Austen Society annual meeting. Did you know there was a big national convention of Jane Austen fans? There is, and it was in Minneapolis in, t in 2013. 
2013. So I was able to go, of course, I'm a, of course I am a card-carrying member of the society, <laughs> but you, like this year, the, um, it was in, where was it? Montreal. So a little harder to get to than Minneapolis, so I really, I really was glad I was able to go, um, go while I could. So it was a wonderful experience. Um, I thought I was into Jane Austen. Some of these people are really into Jane Austen. <laughs> but it was great to be with like-minded people. And they, they learn about you know, not only her books, but the world in which she, which she lived in, um, and all of that as well. So I just I had a wonderful time. And of course, one of the highlights was taking more English country dancing lessons with a real dancing master uh, while we were there. And that was in preparation for the big, had a big Netherfield ball on Saturday night. So we had the big dinner, and then after dinner, so they could quick change it from the big dining room to the ballroom, and they had to get all the tables out. They actually sent us on a promenade or a parade. So we all, all of us who were brave enough, in this picture on the left you can see, uh, who are in our costumes and were brave enough, paraded through the Minneapolis streets, down Nicolette Avenue, past Brits, which I thought was, you know, good. And all, you know, people in the restaurants were just <laughs> staring, <laughs> forks midway to their mouths. Uh, but it was actually a lot of fun. And then we all came back, and there were just hundreds and hundreds of people dancing to, um, to that music, and it was just uh, a wonderful night. Now, what would you guess would be the breakdown of men to women at a Jane Austen convention? Yeah, there weren't a lot of men, so occasionally there was some friendly competition for the uh, <laughs> male dance partners, but the rest of the time we just danced. I was tall, so I was almost always the guy, but oh well, we had a good time, and it was a great thing. Now I'm going to switch gears just a little bit and tell you about the covers because I am often asked, do you design your own covers? Do authors have a lot of input into their covers? And in general, the answer is no, which in my case is a really good thing because I'm not a cover designer. This is Jennifer Parker and she has designed all of my covers to date as well as lots of other ones probably right there out on the shelves right now. So this is a very lay person's quick look at the covers. I'm sure she could talk for a much longer period of time. But Jennifer starts with uh, sketches normally, pencil sketches. She's artistic enough to be able to get across her ideas that way. Uh, or she will also use uh, photographs just to mock up the ideas. Um, those would never become the actual cover, but just to, to get the idea across of what she has in mind. She makes dozens of these sometimes. She makes a lot of ideas. She's very good. And then she takes all of these ideas to a um, creative committee at the publishing house, and they look at all the ideas and they help her narrow it down to one or two that they think would really best present and sell the book. And from there, Jennifer does a couple of things. Um, she hires the cover models from local agencies right here in town. Um, and she hires a stylist to come in and actually do the hair and makeup to help these very modern women <laughs> look like more, look more correct for for the time period uh, that they're uh, representing. And as you can see, just as in real life, the men are often waiting for the women to get ready. Um, you see our dancing master there while waiting for her to get finished up. Now, in general, the books are shot just in a, by a professional photography studio in front of blank screens. Uh, one of them, The Girl in the Gatehouse, they actually shot outside on a beautiful Minnesota day because it's an outside cover, and if they can get that natural light for an outside cover, that's great. Um, of course, on the cover, it looks like it was shot in front of a gatehouse in England, but uh, in general, they're shot in front of just a blank screen. And then, um, these are some early shots of our dancing master. 
I check to make sure the lighting's right and all of that. Um, and then here's again just with our man and woman. And I just have to point this out, her very period correct <laughs> clogs or whatever those are. And I asked her, I actually I met her and I said, well, I mean, they, you know, they're not necessarily young women's shoes. Not only they're not period correct, she goes, there was such a height difference. The dancing master is really tall, and she isn't. So that those are the stylist's big, thick clogs, and <laughs> they had her wear them to bring their, their heads up a little bit more um, to the same height. And then as you can see from those pictures, then Jennifer goes ahead and puts in, even the background, the people dancing in the background, the lights, and all of that is done digitally, and of course, the type uh, as well. Now, because this was my first time having both a man and a woman on my cover, usually I just have the pretty girl in the pretty dress, um, but this time I had the man. So I did something a little different. Every year so far, at least, I have a big book launch when the book comes out in December, and it's usually at the Barnes & Noble nearest me at Harmar, um, and do some, try to do something a little bit different uh, every year. So this year, I, I thought, well, I'll invite the cover model, see if they'll come. I, I had never met him at all and had just met her briefly. Uh, and sure enough, they both uh, graciously said they would come. So I thought it would be fun for my audience to get to meet them because I've had people say, oh, those are real people? Because, you know, it's some covers, especially, you know, 15 years ago, it was paintings or, you know, they're kind of, some publishers just pick, you know, kind of stock photos and doctor them up. But in Bethany House, at least, use, uses real people. So I invited them to my book launch, and uh, they both came. And I thought it would be fun to interview them a little bit about what that was like to be on a cover. Um, and I have to say that um, they were both very gracious and well-spoken. She's telling a little bit about herself. She's done, this is Jennifer, she's done a lot of modeling, actually. And she's been on Bev Beverly Lewis covers, which I'm sure you have uh, out here. Um, so she was telling about her modeling. He is very new to modeling, but he's been on a few other things uh, now as well. And then she's telling, um, oh, I know what they're doing here. Someone asked them, I took questions from Facebook or something, and said, uh, you know, what are some questions you would like to ask the cover models? And so they were asking various things like, you know, what was it like to wear those clothes? And what was it like to pretend you're in love with this complete stranger and look adoringly into this person's eyes that you've never met before? So he's telling about that. And then she's telling a funny story here about how, so, you know, they're, that pose, they're kind of gazing at each other. But when the camera was on her, and so his back was to the camera, he was making all these funny faces at her, I guess to break the tension. And she's like really having a hard time looking all dreamy and doughy-eyed at him. So she was kind of ratting him out here. Um, but they were, they were a lot of fun and obviously very beautiful people. And I will say that all the women in the audience were a little swoony. <laughs> 14 up to 80, we were all a little swoony over this guy. He was, he was very, very nice. Okay, and then the last thing I want to do is give you that sneak peek into the next book because I am getting very excited because it's very real now. It's, it's gotten its first reviews have come out because they, um, you probably realize that they get early copies to Library Journal and Bookstore Journal and various Publishers Weekly, and so those early reviews are starting to come in, and they're positive. They're very positive. This people are saying I hit it out of the ballpark was one quote, and my best yet. So we'll see. We'll see. Um, so it's coming out very soon. So I just want to tell you a little bit uh, about it. And what I thought I would do is just um, show you a few pictures and read you just a description of the book and then we will wrap it up. Okay, so Abigail Foster is the practical behind-the-scenes daughter. 
She fears she will end up a spinster, especially as she has little dowry, and the one man she thought might marry her, a longtime friend, seems to have fallen for her younger, prettier sister. A financial crisis forces the Fosters to sell their London home. As Abigail and her father search for more affordable lodgings, a strange solicitor arrives with an astounding offer, the use of a distant manor house, abandoned for 18 years. The Fosters journey to imposing Pembroke Park and are startled to find it entombed as it was abruptly abandoned decades before. They, they find teacups encrusted with dry tea, moth-eaten clothes and wardrobes, a chess set and doll's house left mid-play. The handsome local curate welcomes them, but though he and his family seem acquainted with the manor's past, the only information they offer is a stern warning. Beware trespassers who may be drawn by rumors that Pembroke Park contains a secret room filled with treasure. This catches Abigail's attention, and hoping to restore her family's finances and her own dowry, she begins searching for this supposed treasure. But eerie sounds at night and footprints in the dust soon reveal that she isn't the only one secretly searching the house. Then Abigail begins receiving anonymous letters containing clues about the hidden room and startling discoveries about the past. As old friends and new foes come calling at Pembroke Park, secrets come to light. Will Abigail find the treasure and love she seeks or very real danger? And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Julie Klassen and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from a woman wondering what Klassen's research and organization processes might look like. Well, I have to admit, first of all, I'm not the most organized person, so naturally, if you saw my house, you would know that. But I'm becoming more and more organized because I you know, want to be more efficient, and I, uh, the more I'm writing, I realize, oh yeah, some of this I have to, I have to get new information because now I'm writing about what it's like to be a governess, or now I'm writing about what it's like to be uh, a tutor. But some of the things like, how long does it take to go 15 miles in a horse and carriage? You know, that, those kinds of things come up again and again. What is it, what do you call a duke's wife? Is that lady so-and-so or is that, some of those things are just come. So I'm a slow learner, but I am a learner and I'm getting much more organized. So I, I'm a, uh, I was telling someone that paper is my nemesis. I've got you know, piles of paper I don't, I don't need. So it, if anything I can get on the computer um, is so helpful to me. So I try to, I have, um, folders on the computer that I keep track of research and I like to have um, visuals I like to have pictures and even if my you know Pembroke Park is not a real there's not a place well there probably is a place but Pembroke Park that I'm writing about is not I'm not writing about a real Pembroke Park because you know what people in England if you write about a real house they know who lived there 200 years ago and they don't want you putting you know your person who's, who's committing some sort of you know little crimes they know that their aunt great aunt so-and-so lived there. And so I have learned, I've used a few real settings, but in general I'm uh, creating fictional homes, but I still like to base them on real places so that I'm getting a sense of what it's really, what the layout really is like and what kinds of history and ghosts are in their closets and that sort of thing. So I take a lot of, um, you know, either I take pictures when I'm in England 
or I find pictures on the computer and that represent my building in this case. Um, you saw I had some pictures about dancing masters and that sort of thing. So as I'm finding images that relate to the research I did, I put all that in my research folder for a particular book. I also have a, a I guess this is the, still the old school part of me, I have a big bulletin board um, next to my desk and I have, I have pictures. I have that manner. I have, um, I have, I like to cast my characters. So I have pictures of what I think the characters look like, only for my you know, benefit, but I like to, okay, who am I describing now versus trying to keep them all straight in my head. And I don't want everyone to sound like me or look like everyone else, so I try to have those pictures uh, up there as well. Um, so I try to keep it in, basically in files on the computer, and I also I buy a lot of old books because libraries frown on you highlighting and tabbing books, so I, don't lo I no longer rely on the library as much. No offense, but I've learned that. So I mostly buy, you know, find used books, and most of the books I want are from England. They're dusty old things that nobody else wants, and so I get a lot of royal mail. I feel very special. Um, but they're odd little you know, books about villages or certain houses or dancing masters, journals, and that sort of thing. And so I do have all those, and I try to keep all the books on my shelf by book. Now, today I was digging around for something, and you know, who knows. But in general, that's how I do it. Books and then everything else on the computer. Our next audience member asks, how many books Klassen is developing at any given point in time? You know, that's a good question. And I, you know, people say, you know, kind of related to that, well, you know, is it hard to come up with ideas? And I'm sorry if I stole someone's question, but I think they're related. Because really, for me, ideas are not the problem. The ideas are easy. It's easy to come up with ideas. If only someone else would actually write them. <laughs> I mean, that's, to me, that's the hard part, is actually going from the idea stage to planning it all out and plotting out this complicated plot and developing the characters and then actually painstakingly trying to get what's in my head, everything I see, painstakingly written down. So uh, long answer to that. I do have, I have several going at once. And part of it is because of how publishing works. Uh, I mentioned, I think, that I recently signed a contract for uh, four more books with, with Bethany House. And uh, three of those are going to be in a series. And so publishing is a very far out Far out, uh, you know. Law. They they know far ahead of time what they're going to be publishing. They have a you know publishing calendar that's out s several years, and so to get a contract for future books, they want me to turn in here. Here are the ideas. Here's what I'm thinking of. Because oddly enough, they don't want me to go out and write space zombies stories. They kind of want me to stay in the genre that's working and people seem to like from me. Um, so I do have to turn in ideas years in advance. Um, because I am only doing one a year presently for the most part. Um, so, you know, a four book contract, I know what I'm doing <laughs> for a long time. Um, so I have a lot of ideas. And then other ideas come up that I haven't even contracted yet. Ooh, that would be fun. Ooh, wait, I can't, I can't go there now. I have to actually write this thing that's due next month. So I, then I start another folder on the computer and then write just enough so that I capture the idea because I'm old enough now if I don't write it down who knows if I'll have that idea tomorrow so I spend the time to write it down just enough that I feel like I've captured it because otherwise it keeps bugging me so I put it in that file and I keep so I have a directory on, on my computer for ideas and then I just have all these story ideas that for later so I have uh, lots of ideas in terms of actually writing um, again I I used to be able to do much more doing many things at once. Um, in terms of now, when I'm actually writing a book, I prefer to just be writing one. But because I, um, 
I may have two books coming out. It looks like I will be having two books coming out next year. I found myself having to revise one book and also write another one. That was, that was harder. So my preference would be just to work on one. But sometimes that's not possible. You have to be correcting galleys for one book, and you already have to be writing the next. But in general, I like to focus on one if I can. Thank you. Excellent question. Another audience member wonders how Klassen's experience in the publishing industry has affected how she writes. Nowadays, um, publishers want authors to do so much more marketing than, than they used to. Um, part, part of that is because we, you know, they're such a s small, divided market. There's um, so many different kinds of genres now and so many authors. And now with ebooks and self-publishing, there are just so many books out there. Uh, and there's so many smaller, newer publishers who can't afford to do almost anything uh, for their writers. And so those publishers, you have to do, you have to get everything from your own bookmarks on up to, if you want to go do a book sign, it's all, all on you, everything. Sometimes printing the book is on you. Um, and then, you know, thankfully, in my case, I'm still with a traditional publisher who does so much of that for me, which I would rather let them do. Because, you know, there are authors who do much more marketing than I do and who, you know, are very, oh, they check their numbers every day and why isn't this selling more and we should be doing this, we should be doing this ad. And I'm like, I just want to write the book and write the, as I still believe, and most people agree, just write a really good book for, I mean, that's your main priority. Because if you don't do that, all the marketing in the world isn't going to help. Um, so I still feel like that's my main priority. But with that said, I do everything my publisher asks me to do. They're, I'm going on a book tour out west I'm in uh, December. I do all kinds of interviews and things, which, you know, sometimes that's ner nerve-wracking and that sort of thing, but I do it. But I don't, I don't get too much involved. Now, because I'm such an Anglophile and love everything British, and my publisher doesn't, I'm like the only, their only author now, they have, they have, they're having one more now, who writes in that. So I, when I see something obvious, like, okay, there's this whole Jane Austen magazine, wouldn't you maybe want to put an ad in there? Oh, I didn't even know that existed. And so then they're more than happy. So they're, that kind of thing, if I see something just so easy and it you know, wouldn't be much work for them to do, and they're more, excuse me, more than happy to do that. So I guess I can't claim I don't meddle at all. Whoops. <laughs> I guess I have meddled a few times in giving them ideas. But in general, I leave the planning to them and do, do what they ask and try to focus on writing. Our next question is whether or not anyone has approached Julie Klassen about turning her books into movies or television shows. Yeah, you know, and it's, you know, I tell people who ask me that, um, you know, I don't know if you know, but it is super hard to even get a book published. Uh, you know, I was obviously blessed. I had a kind of my foot in the door at Bethany House, but I just got back from a, a nationwide writers conference and most people are there trying so hard to get the notice of a publisher or an agent who go to these big events for that purpose. Um, and to get a movie made is like times a million hard because it's not only there are so many books out there, but m movies are expensive, millions of dollars, even to make a, a TV show, a TV production. Um, like, um, I don't know if anybody saw the Love Comes Softly um, Hallmark Channel kind of series. And that, those were Bethany House books. Those were Jeanette Oak, who's a wonderful woman who I have privileged to know. They made her, her books into that series. But even that was years of, of time to, to raise the money and, and get the produce, the backing and all that, which I don't understand at all. So it's, I, cannot, I cannot waste, you know, I cannot put my energy into that. 
Uh, with that said, you know, I have, someone did buy an option for one of my books, which only means they said we want to look at it, and we reserve the right to be the only ones looking at it for a year. It's a, you know, and uh, I know Emma Thompson looked at it. I, she did not. Wouldn't that have been something? But she at least looked at it, which me, for me is like still pretty cool. But so I tell my, jokingly tell my kids that it's probably going to happen, but I'll probably be dead because God knows it would go to my head. So, but you guys go to the premiere, dress up nice, do me proud. You guys go. So, so I think maybe it'll happen someday. But and the other thing is too is that because of writing books in England, you know, most of the American, the Hallmark. I mean, they're not going to they're not going to buy. A, how would they do it? I mean, they'd have to go to carriages and the manors and yeah it would have to be the BBC and they don't do books they do someone has already have to write the script and they look at scripts but they don't look at books so maybe someday I, I would love it Peggy love it love it our last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering how Classen balances her writing and personal life people I am so don't get me wrong I am so thankful to be doing my life stream I really am but in the day in and day out it is a job and it is work, and it is sitting by yourself in front of a you know, computer screen, by yourself. I sit on a pillow, <laughs> even with all this padding. I just, you know, when you're sitting there for 12 hours, when there's a deadline, I'm there for 12, 16 hours a day. My, my husband will tell, I mean, you know, obviously there's other times in the summer when the kids are home, oh, forget it, you know, there's just, it's hard. Um, so no, I'm ready to take, I'm ready to take, to take breaks. But you know, with my schedule the way it is, even though I'm only writing one a year, they're big, thick hunk and I mean they take a long time and I don't just write them once I have to you know revise them and even before the editors see them and so that really hasn't been a problem <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for a break I can't in my case it's more of thankfully there are deadlines I was you know because you know I'm very human I could procrastinate if you know and but I have deadlines and they keep me on track and that's a good thing because I get the books done I'm always on time or close Hopefully, so so no. But you know, when it's time to to do something else, I'm ready to get out of the house and see human beings. <laughs> well, thank you all again for coming, and thank you for your questions. That's fun for me. So thank you. Well, that's it from our Anoka County Rum River Library event with Julie Classen. Catch our next Club Book event with Rebecca Rasmussen at the Stillwater Public Library on Thursday, November 6th at 7 p.m. Meet Rebecca Rasmussen, gear questions answered, and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, Find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, the Crown Plaza Hotel St. Paul Riverfront, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>